Welcome back to another episode of Everything Aviation Podcast. A fantastic guest for us today. Um, this person has flown in tornadoes, uh, is a Gulf War veteran and an author of many fantastic books. John Nickel, welcome onto the podcast. Thank you so much for going on. Thank you, Mikey. Very gracious of you to, uh, in, uh, to introduce me so nicely. Well, I have to say, I'm 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 a big fan of all your stuff. I've read all your books, um, Thank you. and I love you. I love your style of writing. And the latest one that I've I've had a look at has been a tornado uh, in the eye of the storm. Um, it, you, I have I have to ask because you you've written a book called um, Tornado Down. Yeah. Um, where did the inspiration for for this book come from? Because there's a lot more detail in this where it follows other people's stories, yeah. not just your own. Well, Tornado Down. Uh, so, you know, for so some of your uh, listeners and viewers might remember uh, myself and my pilot John Peters were shot down during the first Gulf War, which is 31 years ago, of course, now. Uh, and most memorably, we were paraded on TV. And that kind of, you know, that that was one of the biggest events of the Gulf War to liberate Kuwait 31 years ago. Uh, and out of that, myself and John Peters wrote Tornado Down in what, 30, 1991, I think we wrote that. Wow. Just, you know, seven or eight months after the the war it was a huge bestseller but that I thought that was it I was still in the air force I never thought much more about it uh, and then after I left the air force five or six years later I kind of just continued writing you know I, I joined the air force when I was 16 so I'd never had a proper job I've never had a proper job ever and I didn't want to get a job when I left the air force so I started writing uh, and so uh, Tornado the new one is I think I think book 17 I think it is um, uh, and they just, you know, I was, I wanted to tell the story of the tornado force. Uh, it was an incredible time. What people forget when you look back 31 years is that the tornado had never been to war. In fact, almost nobody in the UK military had been to war. There were some Falkland veterans still around kind of nine years after the Falklands war, but almost nobody had been to war uh, in that way. And nobody, I think I'd be right in saying, had been to war where there were uh, um, a million Iraqi troops facing wow. 900,000 Allied troops, where we were putting up maybe two, three, four thousand sorties a day across the coalition, where we were flying deep into enemy territory. Nobody had done anything like that. And nobody in the tornado force had ever flown the jet in anger. So I wanted to tell that story, not just them. So, you know, the, the iconic image there of the tornado flying down the runway, bombing a runway or a, with a JP-233. But I tell the story in the book of the families waiting at home as well. So you get two very different perspectives on what warfare is like. And so that's why I, why I wanted to do. That's what I love about it as well, John, because you tell that story about the family so well. Um, and it's great to see as well from the two different contrasts from, like you said, you're going deep in behind enemy, uh, enemy lines. And these other people are just sat at home waiting for news of, of their loved ones. And you talk quite a bit in the book of where a senior officer has turned up at a door in full dress uniform for that horrible knock to say they're either MIA or, or KIA. Yeah. Um, and I, I suppose your own family had, uh, would have, would have got that knock on the door also. Yeah. Uh, so my, um, you know, again, anybody in the military will kind of understand what the knock at the door means. Uh, and I describe it on kind of four or five occasions when friends of mine have either were either killed or when they were uh, they didn't know if they were alive or dead uh, or missing in action. Uh, and every single person said, if you see so 30 years ago, military cars were all black. 
to all intents, you know, a black cavalier, uh, a black escort, a black mini. So the station commander would normally have a, a reasonably decent car, kind of a, you know, a cavalier two liter or something like that. Um, but when his, if his black car pulled up outside your house, you knew what that meant. And there's a, one of the stories I tell, the guy who's actually killed uh, just before the war started in training, uh, he was a senior officer. He was a group captain. So uh, he, um, his, uh, his wife was asleep in bed. The doorbell went, I think it was about one o'clock in the morning. And she said, oh, he's forgotten his keys. You know, he's been flying, training flights. He's forgotten his keys. Goes downstairs, opens the spy hole. And the station commander is outside. And she can see the, the gold glistening on his cap. And she, and she said, I knew immediately what that meant. And so I didn't open the door. I just sat back, sat on the stairs while he rang the doorbell. And I refused to open the door because if you open the door, you're told the news. If you yeah. don't open the door, you can keep it away. And when you hear it like that, that's really, really moving. Mm. Uh, and so my own mum and dad, it was, I think it was a Sunday morning. Uh, they'd been to church or they'd, uh, they'd been to church and they came home and there was a car sitting outside their house. And a ma- as they walked up the, the street, a man got out in uniform. Are you Mr. and Mrs. Nickel? Uh, and, and then, you know, and that's the start. So my journey uh, as a prisoner of war had started. And then their journey, not knowing if their son was alive or dead, started as well, as did many, many other around my colleagues. That's mad. I, I can just imagine the feeling as well for them families when, especially for your own, that they get home from somewhere and, and that formidable car a man in uniform is, is already waiting to tell them news and um, did you guys know because it, it was a cold war fighter effectively um and it grew out to be massive i think there was a prime minister that was famous for anything that go wrong he would say where's my tornadoes and did you guys <laughs> know at the time taking this into a, uh, into a war zone for the first time how iconic this jet was going to turn out and how formidable this jet was going to be no, I mean, this was a product of the Cold War. So the tornado was a, a low-level tactical bomber and a tactical nuclear bomber. So it was a design of the probably the late 60s and into the 70s, really. That's what it was done. You know, it was old-fashioned by today's stands. I can't remember what the main computer's power was, but I think it was something like 64K or 128K <laughs> computer. I mean, it was really, really basic stuff uh, by today's standards by those standards, it was astonishing, terrain-following radar. So and it was designed to basically fly low, fast, through cloud, uh, underneath the radar coverage of an enemy state, uh, through hills, through valleys, but without the pilot flying, if that makes sense. So the, ra- the, the terrain-following radar, which is an incredible invention for the time, would sweep the area in front of the jet, and it would look, and it would see everything from metal fences to metal masts to the way the ground undulated to hills Ow. to valleys to trees to forests and it was designed and we and on the first night the guys were flying into Iraq at maybe 550 600 miles an hour at 200 feet above the ground and the pilots are sitting in the cockpit with their hands off the controls wow completely completely off the controls. So they're monitoring the system to see that it's working, but the jet is flying itself on autopilot and on a pre-designated route that the navigator's doing in the backseat. So it was an amazing bit of kit. Uh, And taking it into battle at low level, 
is what we expected to do. I mean, the Cold War never came, went, never went hot, but we were doing what we had trained to do, uh, flying at night at 200 feet hands off or flying at day with a pilot visually flying, flying at maybe 30 or 40 feet above the desert visually uh, and maybe 550, 600 miles an hour, something like that. Wow. So it was an incredible aircraft. Um, but we were flying into some of the most heavily defended region, you know, heavily defended airfields. You know, we, we, uh, we hadn't fully appreciated the level uh, of defence. Now, that sounds naive. We knew all about the missile systems. We knew all about their fighters. We had all of our systems in place, electronic countermeasures, chaff to disrupt their radars, flares, uh, jammers to jam their missile systems. Uh, and so we were all ready for that. What nobody had really contemplated was what it was like to fly towards an airfield the size of Heathrow Airport with 5,000, 10,000 guns, AAA, anti-aircraft artillery, firing into the air. So you're flying into a dome, a wall of exploding lead. Just We tried to recreate some of that on the cover of the book. Just It's this sparkling, uh, exploding shells. And, you know, the, the guy who did it on the first night, who was the first in, said it was like trying to run through a shower without getting wet. Wow. Uh, and so the jet was formidable. We were highly trained uh, in its operation. But undoubtedly, the, the, the flat and the AAA was uh, unexpected in its ferocity and what it looked like, simply the sight of seeing a curtain, of something that you said, well, we can't get through that. It's a solid bowl of exploding fire. Uh, and then we had no idea that the tornado would then go on to fight for another 30 years all around the world in different guises, of course. That's amazing. Wow. And you, you, you described that quite, quite like, really in depth. Um, and I was going to say that the, the, effectively the, the cover of this book um, is the mission that you guys were more or less assigned. Um, are you able to, to give us a, a rundown of what that mission looked like? Yeah, so, that, the, so the cover in actual fact is, a, is the night. So that's a scene from the first night. So you can see that the, these are the JP-233. This is what the tornado was designed for the Cold War, two massive canisters containing explosive charges that buried themselves in, a, in an enemy runway, blew the runway up, causing massive craters. And then in the back, as, you, as it blew the runway up, it also sprayed anti-personnel mines, wow. uh, anti uh uh, airfield denial mines, so things that would destroy bulldozers, would kill people who tried to fix the, who tried to repair the runway. The JP233 was designed to uh, destroy enemy airfields or deny their use uh, for periods of time. And so, you know, you've got, so we were putting eight jets over three or four of the Iraqi bases on the first night in the dark, and that's what that scene is. Our mission was the, the first daylight raid, so setting off at about a dawn, maybe six o'clock in the morning, I think, something like that. Uh, and we were actually tossing, throwing a uh, thousand pound bombs. So there was meant to be four jets armed with eight one thousand pound bombs at 32,000 pounds of explosive. And then basically throwing these into the middle of an airfield where all the aircraft and everything else were. Um, and we were flying. So it was daylight. So my pilot, JP, was flying at 30 feet, 20 feet above the desert crossing the border and then heading in towards the Iraqi airfield wow. uh, with me updating the equipment, keeping an eye on the defensive systems and everything. And I mean, as in actual fact, one aircraft went US and our, we 
uh, our attack went wrong, kind of button pressing problem with me by mistake in the back seat. Um, and so we didn't get our bombs off, but we were heading home when we were hit by a heat seeking missile. So uh, an infrared, you know, the kind of things that you sometimes see in movies where somebody's got it on their shoulder and they fire it, it shoots off and uh, it homes in on the heat of the uh, aircraft engine or the helicopter engine. We didn't see it coming. If we had seen it coming, there's a chance that you could put flares out to try to, to, to make the missile go after the flare rather than your engine. But we didn't see it coming. It just hit us. The jet was kind of tossed out of control, really. Uh, we nearly hit the ground because it was, you know, we kind of nearly hit the ground. But JP, my pilot, got hold of it with a supreme skill. Uh, and But the jet was on fire. All the fly-by wire systems are down. Uh, and basically, we're in a, you know, we're trying to limp towards the border while on fire, while the jet is burning all around us. And we're kind of, you know, we're in a situation where if we don't get out, there's a very real possibility that we could explode. So in the agenda, and JP and I have to eject, you know, the Martin Baker ejection seat was there as our final get-out clause to save our lives. But obviously, and many of my friends have ejected uh, in training, and you kind of end up either in the North York Moors one, you know, or the Highlands of Scotland or something, uh, waiting to be picked up by a helicopter as long as you're not injured by the ejection. But obviously, the start of our, our journey started again, ejecting and ending up on Iraqi soil behind enemy lines. So wow, that was the start of another journey. <laughs> um, you, you talk about that journey um, when, when you get uh, captured and stuff, and you say it's very surreal because a lot of these Iraqi officers had done training with you guys. Um, yeah. And you were almost treated like just a visiting air crew at the start. I think it went through different phases. The, we were on jump and I were on the run for about three hours before kind of they caught up with this lot of shooting guns. You know, it was really quite terrifying, like being in the middle of a uh, Hollywood cowboy movie or something mm. like that. Or, you know, when you're playing Call of Duty or something and the bullets are whizzing past your head. Well, that's what it was like in the desert for us. Uh, and they were pretty violent uh, when they caught us. They were a bit out of control, understandably, because they were under attack, to be perfectly honest. And, you know, we'd been killing them. Uh, they'd seen their airfields bombed. They'd seen some of their friends killed. So kind of completely understandable. Uh, but then and we thought we were going to be killed then uh, because they actually, I thought they were just going to kill us out of hand. But an officer managed to get hold of them. We were then taken back to an airfield and taken into what we would call the PBF, the pilot's briefing facility. So basically where the aircrew live on the airfield, a massive reinforced concrete bunker where you sit out any attacks before rushing off to get in your aircraft uh, to do your own thing. And they were, they were really quite friendly, which is, <laughs> and, and, and it, it, was, it was surreal because there were bombs going off. You know, you could hear the airfield being bombed and it would be, you could feel the blast even in the bunker. And, you know, at one point they were kind of getting us in and they, 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 the bombs were going off so close that they kind of pushed us down further into the bunker to protect us. And it was our mates trying to kill them, but they were still trying to protect us. Um, and, you know, it was they were kind of saying, it was almost like a chat, where are you from? What are you flying? What did you do? And of course, we're not meant to be answering any of these questions. So we're kind of fat, dumb and happy not saying anything. Uh, and you could see in their faces that they knew what we were doing. But at one point they said, guys, if you, if you just talk to us here, we might be able to keep you here. If you don't, you'll be going to Baghdad and they will make you talk in Baghdad. Ooh. And that you kind of think, yeah, I know that. But, you know, you have to you can't let it happen that way. You have to still obey the rules. 
so I guess we ended up kind of on a, I don't know, a 10, 12 hour journey through a number of different airfields till we ended up in Baghdad uh, that night, the night we'd been shot down, the 17th of January, 1991. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. That, that, I can only imagine how scary that must be, especially when you said they're coming at you. They're in nearly our control. It's almost like a Western film. Um, yeah. And it, it talks about, like, I, I, I doubt that at this stage you knew that anyone else had, had also come down because it happened over a number of days. Um, and you talk very, in, in the book, you hear other people's stories about them and everything um, getting shot down. But it sounds like that most of your experiences are kind of similar, if, if that makes sense, because you were all asked the same questions, but none of them were really tactical, were they? It was really curious, Mikey, to be honest. So first of all, back then, there were sim- simple rules. Uh, you, have, you could say your number, your rank, your name, your date of birth. That were called the big four. Uh, and then the other thing you would say to any question that you were asked, I cannot answer that question. They can ask you as many questions as they want, but you don't have the rules of war, the rules of armed conflict say that you don't have to. Now, that was all kind of, it's all fine in theory, but they were going to, you know, we knew that they were going to resort. They, they, they could ask you questions, but they couldn't um, uh, ask them with brutality. Well, clearly after kind of, you know, half an hour, they were kind of beating us, stubbing cigarettes out on us. Uh, you know, kind of, you know, smashing our heads against walls, throwing us around, you know, so it got pretty brutal pretty quickly. But you still don't want to answer the questions. You don't want to give in. That's You don't want to give in. Even though you know that you will give in, at some point you will give in. Because nobody can endure this. Even some of the, well, I suppose some of the special forces guys did in the end of that actual fight. But you know you'll give in. But you almost want to kind of say, right, I'm going to take as much as I can before I give in, even though I know it's pointless and it's stupid and I could spare myself some pain and, uh, and some pretty horrific experiences. But then once you have given, given in, you feel, a, I personally felt a real failure that, yeah. you know, I'd not held out. But then they were kind of asking daft questions like, how heavy is a tornado? Well, I suppose I should know how heavy a tornado was, but I didn't really. And so then you get a, that are kicking for not knowing some of the basic facts about your own jet. Uh, and they, they didn't know what they should have asked us. Does that make sense? Yeah. They didn't really know. Uh, it was their way of working. It was that kind of uh, regime that they, with a prisoner, you had to be brutal to them and you had to make them talk. And as long as they were talking, they didn't care. They could just say to, I presume their masters, yes, he's now and this is the information but they could have asked much more pertinent information how heavy was it how fast does it fly type of thing. I thought it was really good as well that um, yourself and a couple of other uh, people uh, I think it was Robbie Stewart as well was thinking when they were asking questions it was th- you guys were thinking of what has been published in the British media that we can reel off and surprisingly the Iraqis hadn't hadn't yeah. seen any of that yet which was which was really clever on you, your guys part uh, no, we so there was things, things in the run up to the war. You know what the newspapers are like. You know they'd had detailed profiles of all of the different jets, where they were based, which squadrons were involved. Uh, you know who was it, which airbase. None of which should have been printed. But you know you can't do anything about it. But if you're telling them stuff like that, then you know you're 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 um, you're keeping the, the interrogation going, if that makes sense. So if, 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 you know, if they're not asking you about, I don't know, how would they rescue a combat, somebody who'd been shot down, which they didn't ever, thank God they never asked. Uh, 
uh, because that could have been catastrophic. But if they're asking where are the tornadoes based, well, you can say, yeah, well, they are in Bahrain. Uh, I think, you know, you can ask, you can sound, you can act daft and stupid, not difficult in my, uh, my case, to be perfectly honest, because they would not understand that we would have a load of information from all, because we knew everything mm-hmm. within reason. Whereas within their regime, nobody would tell them anything. Yeah. So you could you could actually ask Santa, well, I don't know who the squad commander is. I've never met him. I don't know how many tornadoes we have because nobody's ever told me. So you could get over some of it that way. But it was not a pleasant experience to be no, I can imagine. And another thing that probably wasn't a pleasant experience is when you guys were in your cells and stuff, you could hear your your mates oh. still bombing. Um, yeah. That was pretty scary because no one knows where you are at this point. Uh, I think there was some intelligence guesses about where we were, uh, but we were being bombed. So we were prisoners of war for, what, uh, six and a half weeks, something like that. Uh, and we were nearly killed on a couple of occasions. So I said about the occasion just after we'd been captured, when we, the airfield was bombed, and you could feel it. The night we got to Baghdad, when we got into the, I think it was an air base on the, outs- the outskirts of Baghdad, it was severely bombed, and the buildings that we were in were hit, and the building, you know, the, it wasn't, the buildings didn't come down, but the windows were coming in, the roof, the ceilings were coming down, uh, and that was absolutely terrifying. And then uh, on the 23rd of February, we were actually we moved to yet another base. We were actually in the Mukhabarak, which is the Iraqi secret police, their internal security. We were in their massive uh, reinforced, built, huge concrete building in Baghdad. And that was bombed directly by four stealth fighters dropping wow. 2,000 pound bombs. And that was destroyed. The wing in the opposite side that we were, but we were, we truly thought we were going to be, uh, I thought I was going to die. You know, the building was coming down. The, you know, the, the building was coming down around us and you were, every bomb that went off, you were in this kind of six foot by six foot cell, something like that. Um, and every time the bomb went off, you'd be kind of blasted off the floor. Whoa. And, and then I think, you think, oh my God, the floor's gone and I'm going to collapse through the building and then the building's going to come down on me. Uh, and that was absolutely terrifying, absolutely terrifying. I can imagine. And it's, it's, well, I say I can imagine. I, I, I don't even know if I can imagine that. Um, I was going to say, there's very few people who, who have a story like, like yourself and are able to tell it like yourself, which is, uh, I take my hat off to you that all these years later, you can sit down, put it to pen and paper and, and sit here with me and, and tell me about this. Um, and it, 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 at this stage as well, did you know that your mates had been shot down as well? Um, or, or was it just a thing that you found out as you went along? It was something, depending on where you were, you could hear other voices. So we were held in maybe three or four different prisons uh over the seven weeks in the first prison you could you could actually hear and occasionally through a kind of a gap in a bar in a cell you could see that there were certainly other americans uh that i could see the kuwaiti pilot Mohammed Mubarak. uh i could hear him i could hear uh larry slade uh who became a great friend of mine who was a tomcat an f-14 backseater who was captured his pilot was rescued in an astonishing search and rescue operation oh wow um, Oh, it's an amazing story. Um, um, so you knew every, you could hear some people, and then very occasionally you might. But you had I had no concept. I think at the end, I think there were something like forty Allied prisoners of war. So they were probably I think thirty five Americans, a Kuwaiti, a couple of Italians, uh, six seven Brits, 
uh, there was journalists from CNN had been captured as well. Oh, wow. A couple of, uh, you know, there, there was quite a lot. Um, and it wasn't until that, the story I just said about that prison being bombed. So they had to get us, they got us out of the shattered prison. Uh, normally they kind of moved us around with blindfolds in, at night, never seeing anything, never hearing anything. But on that night, they just had to get us out and threw us on a bus. And there must have been 25, 30 other prisoners of war on this bus. Uh, and so I, that, that was the night I met uh, Robbie Stewart, uh, Bob Ankerson, uh, Dave Waddington. Uh, and so all my great friends now, because the tornado force was so big then, I never knew any of these people. I'd never heard of them. The tornado force was massive. I think we had, uh, what, 13 or 14 squadrons, and uh, wow. some, something like that, over three massive, uh, sorry, four, three massive air bases, four massive air bases, uh, two, in the, two in Germany and two in the UK, three in the UK. So you didn't really, you know, we had, I think I'm right in seeing, we had something like 260 or 270 tornadoes. Just wow. tornado, tornado GR1s and GR1As. We had another 160 tornado F3s. You know, there's, there was a massive air force there. And so I never knew most of these people. And I met them in a cell that night. Uh, oh. so that's when you began to understand some, that's other people had been shot down. That was the night that I found that a friend of mine from my squad had been shot down, River Clark, but his navigator, a good friend of mine, had been killed uh, in, the, in the missile attack. And so you are picking up these scraps of information as you move through the through the journey of uh, being a prisoner of war. Wow, 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 wow! I, I find that mad that you've you've done all that time and they all, it was it was just during that bombing thing you finally all bumped yeah. into each other. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there was. The, I can't remember how many uh, personnel we must have had. I'm guessing they must have been. I don't know, two thousand air crew or something. I'm, it's just a rough guess. Kind of, you know, past, present, kind of, who were some were brought back to the force. Some, you know, so then there was it was a huge force, huge force. Wow! So then after your, so you you did a low level, a daytime bombing raid, yeah. um, which obviously didn't didn't end well for you guys. At what point? Well, it was the last one. The RAF, the RAF didn't do that kind okay. of low level bombing attack again. After that, uh, daylight. That, that that was going to be my question: Is at what point did they start looking at medium level nighttime runs again? Uh, well, they, they, so they, they didn't do another day level uh, daylight attack, after, daylight low level attack. After that, uh, they were still doing recce missions. So when the recce tornadoes were going out with all of its uh, recce kit, the cameras and everything, they were still going out on their own at low level for the whole of the war. Uh, but after, I think, three or four nights, and I kind of go through the process in the book, um, we'd have taken a few losses, not as many as we expected, but we'd taken a few. And everybody else was still flying at low level. And, you know, people have forgotten this when they make the arguments about the tornado flying at low level. The, almost everybody in the first few days was flying at level. So the strike eagles, the American strike eagles, and they lost two at low level in the first uh, 20, 48 hours. Very few people acknowledge that. Uh, the Americans off the carriers, the A6s, were flying at relatively low level. The, the uh, Italians were flying at low level. Every, almost every, the French were. One of the French guys, uh, I can't remember who was flying, but he took a, uh, a bullet around. He was flying at low level. Uh, so the Iraqis were just holding their AK-47s up in the air and spraying them around. A bullet from the ground went through his helmet. 
Whoa. And there's, uh, there's a picture, uh, I didn't put it in the book, because you can't really see it. So one online where you can see the bullet went through his helmet. Everybody was flying at low level. Everybody was at risk. But it became apparent that we needed to, nobody had really thought of, had properly thought about the threat from the anti-aircraft artillery. Our greatest worry was the threat from their fighters. They had really modern fighters, uh, MiG-29s, Mirages. They were battle-hardened with their war with Iran where we were not battle-hardened. And so the threat, we thought the threat from their air force was the big threat. Then the threat from their integrated air defense system, SAM 2, 3, uh, 6, 8, really, really worrying. But their air force didn't really get off the ground. And every time it did get off the ground, our allies uh, shot it down. And because our anti-missile defences, so the defence suppression aircraft was so uh, good, it became apparent that we didn't need to be at that low level anymore. Um, And after, I think, four days, they moved to medium level. Not the tornado's best, because it's not designed to drop bombs from medium level. But then, again, a few days after that, we started to bring the Buccaneers out and laser-guided bombs. And then that's when the tornado came into its own with precision-guided bombs attacking again, going back to attacking the airfields, attacking the runways, attacking the uh, the hardened aircraft shelters, attacking the bridges, uh, cutting the supply routes. And that's when it kind of really did uh, begin to, to find its feet again. Wow. Because um, I remember as well, you, you've described it really well in the book, is where you see the guys on the first night and they're, they're heading off and they're like, yeah, we dropped bombs, wow. But as it went on and more and more people didn't come back, that kind of morale kind of took a, a plunge to the point where nobody really wanted to climb in the jet anymore to go and do this. I, I, I wouldn't ca- characterise it as nobody wanted to climb into the jet because nobody, uh, well, there's a couple of occasions where some people, a couple of people had actual mental breakdowns because of what was going on. And I detail that in the book because it's an, in, it's an important story. Yeah. Uh, in actual fact, but 99.9% of people continued. But as my boss said, you could look around and you knew you, people looked around and said, who's going to die tonight? Wow. Uh, and that kind of after two or three nights, you can't kind of, you, you have to think about what you're doing and the reason for doing it. If, they, if this was, uh, I don't know, defense of our homeland, people would have gone and died without a question. But this was, part of a massive campaign to deny the Iraqis the use of their air force whilst liberating somebody else's homeland. Wow. And it became apparent quite quickly that we could do it a different way and still achieve the aim, which is what the military is all about. Wow. So it's quite a complicated situation, really, um, yes. when, when, when you put it like that. Yeah. But what was, what was the feeling like then um, when, when you guys were set free and told that the, the war's finished? Uh, unbelievable. Um, you know, we didn't know if we were going to be prisoners for a week, a month, 10 months, a year, 10 years. You know, the Iraqis had, and the Iranians had kept some prisoners of war from the various Iran-Iraq conflicts for 10, 15 years. And we didn't know. We didn't know how long the war would last. That it was over in six weeks was astonishing, bearing in mind the amount of... Uh, uh, military hardware and personnel that were on the ground and the amount that the Iraqis had on the ground. So being told, you know, kind of the war's over, you can go home on one hand, you're thinking they could be lying to us, they could be tricking us. But quite quickly, we were handed over to the Red Cross, or actually the Red Crescent. Uh, 
and then flown out of uh, Iraq. And that was the most astonishing, oh man, the most astonishing feeling. Sadness that some of our mates had not survived. Sadness that there'd been so many casualties, although again, not the, the, the depth of casualties that we'd expect, but the sense that we'd got through it. Bit selfish, I accept, but landing back, landing back on Saudi soil, and then almost immediately being flown off to our military base in Cyprus was an amazing experience. Wow, that's so cool. You talk, you talk so well about it. Um, and I wouldn't, like, you say a bit selfishly, but I suppose when you're in kind of extreme conditions like that, your kind of self-preservation kicks in, uh, which is completely understandable as well. Um, and at this point, because you guys were, you, you were put on telly and all that. So your family, they, they knew you guys were, were still alive at this point, which must have been a kind of a, a bit of a nicety for them. Well, it was a double-edged sword because John Peters and I had appeared on TV on the third day of the war. So they knew we were alive. Then, but oh, they didn't okay. know it we was survived. Yeah, they, that was three days into the conflict, so they didn't know that we'd have survived. And in fact, I think, oh, maybe th- uh, I think probably, actually, I think it was more or less as the war ended, newspaper reports were coming out that we'd been tortured to death, and my oh. mum and dad were reading these RAF uh, aircrew tortured to death by Saddam thugs, and they thought that we were dead, and so they didn't know until oh, okay. until we were handed over the Red Cross. And then the Red Cross could send a message back. But the military was being really careful because they didn't, still didn't know everybody because some families were still waiting and didn't know that their loved ones were dead. They'd been killed when they'd been shot down. So they weren't prisoners of war. And nobody knew who was alive and who was dead. So it was a really tough time uh, for wow. the families. Wow, wow. And when you, so after all that, when you got back to the UK, you, I think you, you flew again, didn't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Listen, I mean, it was, it sounds curious, but it was a terrible experience and I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy. But, you know, police and uh, <laughs> firefighters and God forbid, you know, nurses and doctors on the front line go through worse things on a Saturday night, uh, you know, sometimes. So we just wanted to get back in the air. So, yeah, I went back into the Air Force. Sorry, continued flying. Uh, did another five years in the Air Force. I wanted to prove myself. So when the Bosnian campaign came around in, what was that 92 93 i was really keen to get on that again just to show that i could do it and not yeah. pocket up and go back you know uh, and go on a mission and come home uh so I was, so no it, it never occurred to me to say i don't want to do this to be perfectly honest i just wanted to get back flying with my mates again wow and the first time you climbed back into the tornado was there any kind of apprehension any excitement there, there wasn't actually the, uh, it was just kind of back to normal. Yeah, you know, clearly I, the first time back, I hadn't flown for, what, January through to, I think we were, went on leave until April or something uh, after we came home in March. So maybe three and a half months or something, I hadn't flown. Uh, I think on the third trip back, my, my formation leader, Pablo Mason, uh, we were flying on a training sortie with him in Germany and he managed to crash. Uh, so I think that was my third or fourth story back. Oh, wow! Uh, and so I saw his his jet hitting the ground and exploding uh, in a, on a sortie in northern Germany, which was interesting. Uh, but he, they, they were both okay, well, relatively okay. That's always good news. So, but no, we just wanted to be back. To be honest, just back in the groove, back in the saddle, so to say. 
Brilliant. And what, what made your decision then to, to, to leave the Air Force? Because you, you talk so highly of it and I can see your face yeah. light up when you do talk about it. I had a great time. I, I joined when I was well, 16 and a half, just after I left school. Uh, 17 when I walked through the door. But, you know, when I was doing my O-levels in 1979, was it? 1979, 80, I can't remember. I was joining the Air Force then. So it was everything, you know, I wanted to do. Uh, come the 90, mid-1990s, the Air Force was going through huge cutbacks something that we're seeing again and something that any public sector, whether you're a librarian or a pilot or a police officer or a nurse, will tell you about. And I kind of, it was trying to do too much with too little. Again, something that everybody in the public sector will tell you is happening again there. But I wanted to get out while the going was good. And I'm pleased I got out. I had a great 16 years. But I was pleased to be out and start something again. I didn't realise it was going to be this. You know, these kind of all these books here that, that from the last three, I didn't realize that was going to be my journey, uh, but, you know, that's what it became. So, as I say, I, jo- I left school at 16, joined the Air Force, and I've never had a proper job since. So that's okay. <laughs> I love how you describe it as not, not a proper job. It's, it's almost not a proper job. Uh... My old man, well, my dad worked in the heavy industries in the Northeast, the Vickers Tank Works up, in, wow. uh, up in the, on the time. You know, that was a job. That was a job where you went in at eight o'clock in the morning or five o'clock at night and everybody, you know, you had a 10 minute tea break there and a half an hour lunch break and you built things and you did things. I, I don't do any. I've never done anything like that. I suppose as well with, with the writing and being an author and all that, you're, you're basically just telling the stories and writing stuff you're really passionate about. Yeah, and other, telling other people's stories. And, you know, I get to go to amazing events. I get to interview amazing people. So, yeah, I'm lucky. Very lucky. That's so cool. Well, John, I have to say thank you so much for your time today. And if anyone out there, any of my listeners, any of my viewers are looking for a Christmas present and a really, really good read to hear John's story, please do go and pick up a copy of Tornado in the Eye of the Storm. Uh, I highly recommend it. And as well, John has written some other fantastic books, some about the Lancaster Spitfire and his his, his own time. But um, yeah, definitely go and, and, and pick up copies of all these books. Have a read and check them out for, for Christmas. John, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. Have a great Christmas. All the best, everybody. Bye-bye. Thanks. And you. Bye-bye now.